Welcome to Bible News Press. Our goal is to discuss biblical faith beyond cliches and buzzwords, whether such words are religious or political. Sometimes we sit around the table and fellowship. Sometimes we do a little time travel. It is all part of our journey with our Abba Father, who has given us the key to life. We do it with Jesus, and we do it together. Welcome. Hello, I'm Laura. I will be reading Ezekiel chapters 8 through 11 from the World English Bible. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house and the elders of Judah sat before me, the Lord Yahweh's hand fell on me there. Then I saw, and behold, a likeness as the appearance of fire. From the appearance of his waist and downward, fire, and from his waist and upward, as the appearance of brightness, as it were glowing metal. He stretched out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and the sky, and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the gate of the inner court that looks toward the north, where there was the seat of the image of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy. Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, according to the appearance that I saw in the plain. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift up your eyes now the way toward the north. So I lifted up my eyes the way toward the north and saw, northward of the gate of the altar, this image of jealousy in the entry. He said to me, Son of man, do you see what they do, even the great abominations that the house of Israel commit here, that I should go far off from my sanctuary? But you will again see yet other great abominations. He brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, behold, a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, Son of man, dig now in the wall. When I had dug in the wall, I saw a door. He said to me, Go in and see the wicked abominations that they do here. So I went in and looked, and saw every form of creeping things, abominable animals, and all the idols of the house of Israel, portrayed around on the wall. Seventy men of the elders of the house of Israel stood before them. In the middle of them, Jeazaniah, the son of Shaphan, stood, every man with his censer in his hand, and the smell of the cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in his rooms of imagery? For they say, Yahweh doesn't see us, Yahweh has forsaken the land. He also said to me, You will again see more of the great abominations which they do. Then he brought me to the door of the gate of Yahweh's house, which was toward the north, and I saw the women sit there weeping for Tammuz. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, son of man? You will again see yet greater abominations than these. He brought me into the inner court of Yahweh's house, and I saw at the door of Yahweh's temple, between the porch and the altar, there were about twenty-five men with their backs toward Yahweh's temple and their faces toward the east. They were worshiping the sun toward the east. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, son of man? Is it a light thing to the house of Judah that they commit the abominations which they commit here? 
for they have filled the land with violence and have turned again to provoke me to anger. Behold, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore I will also deal in wrath. My eye won't spare, neither will I have pity. Though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, yet I will not hear them. Then he cried in my ears with a loud voice, saying, Cause those who are in charge of the city to draw near, each man with his destroying weapon in his hand. Behold, six men came from the way of the upper gate, which lies toward the north, every man with his slaughter weapon in his hand. One man in the middle of them was clothed in linen, with a writer's inkhorn by his side. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. The glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherub, whereupon it was, to the threshold of the house, and he called to the man clothed in linen, who had the writer's inkhorn by his side. Yahweh said to him, Go through the middle of the city, through the middle of Jerusalem, and set a mark on the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry over all the abominations that are done within it. To the others he said in my hearing, Go through the city after him and strike. Don't let your eyes spare, neither have pity. Kill utterly the old man, the young man, the virgin, little children, and women. But don't come near any man on whom is the mark. Begin at my sanctuary. Then they began at the old men who were before the house. He said to them, Defile the house and fill the courts with the slain. Go out. They went out and struck in the city. While they were killing, and I was left, I fell on my face and cried and said, Ah, Lord Yahweh, will you destroy all the residue of Israel in your pouring out of your wrath on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, The iniquity of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great, and the land is full of blood, and the city full of perversion. For they say, Yahweh has forsaken the land, and Yahweh doesn't see. As for me also, my eye won't spare, neither will I have pity, but I will bring their way on their head. Behold, the man clothed in linen, who had the inkhorn by his side, reported the matter, saying, I have done as you have commanded me. Then I looked, and see, in the expanse that was over the head of the cherubim, there appeared above them, as it were, a sapphire stone as the appearance of the likeness of a throne. He spoke to the man clothed in linen and said, Go in between the whirling wheels, even under the cherub, and fill both your hands with coals of fire from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. He went in as I watched. Now the cherubim stood on the right side of the house when the man went in, and the cloud filled the inner court. Yahweh's glory mounted up from the cherub and stood over the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was full of the brightness of Yahweh's glory. The sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard even to the outer court, as the voice of God Almighty when he speaks. It came to pass, when he commanded the man clothed in linen, saying, Take fire from between the whirling wheels, from between the cherubim, that he went in and stood beside a wheel. The cherub stretched out his hand from between the cherubim to the fire that was between the cherubim, and took some of it, and put it into the hands of him who was clothed in linen, who took it and went out. The form of a man's hand appeared here in the cherubim under their wings. 
I looked, and behold, there were four wheels beside the cherubim, one wheel beside each cherub, and another wheel beside another cherub. The appearance of the wheels was like a barrel stone. As for their appearance, the four of them had one likeness, like a wheel within a wheel. When they went, they went in their four directions. They didn't turn as they went, but to the place where the head looked, they followed it. They didn't turn as they went. Their whole body, including their backs, their hands, their wings, and the wheels, were full of eyes all around, even the wheels that the four of them had. As for the wheels, they were called, in my hearing, the whirling wheels. Every one of them had four faces. The first face was the face of the cherub. The second face was the face of a man. The third face was the face of a lion. The fourth was the face of an eagle. The cherubim mounted up. This is the living creature that I saw by the river Chabar. When the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them, and when the cherubim lifted up their wings to mount up from the earth, the wheels also didn't turn from beside them. When they stood, these stood. When they mounted up, these mounted up with them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in them. Yahweh's glory went out from over the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. The cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight when they went out, with the wheels beside them. Then they stood at the door of the east gate of Yahweh's house, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them above. This is the living creature that I saw under the God of Israel by the river Chabar, and I knew that they were cherubim. Everyone had four faces, and everyone four wings. The likeness of the hands of a man was under their wings. As for the likeness of their faces, they were the faces which I saw by the river Chabar, their appearances and themselves. They each went straight forward. Moreover, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of Yahweh's house, which looks eastward. Behold, twenty-five men were at the door of the gate, and I saw among them Azaniah the son of Azur, and Pelatiah the son of Benaiah, the princes of the people. He said to me, Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and who give wicked counsel in this city, who say, The time is not near to build houses. This is the cauldron, and we are the meat. Therefore prophesy against them. Prophesy, son of man. Yahweh's spirit fell on me, and he said to me, Speak. Yahweh says, Thus you have said, house of Israel, for I know the things that come into your mind. You have multiplied your slain in this city, and you have filled its streets with the slain. Therefore the Lord Yahweh says, Your slain, whom you have laid in the middle of it, they are the meat, and this is the cauldron. But you will be brought out of the middle of it. You have feared the sword, and I will bring the sword on you, says the Lord Yahweh. I will bring you out of the middle of it and deliver you into the hands of strangers, and will execute judgments among you. You will fall by the sword. I will judge you in the border of Israel. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. This will not be your cauldron, neither will you be the meat in the middle of it. I will judge you in the border of Israel. You will know that I am Yahweh, for you have not walked in my statutes. You have not executed my ordinances, but have done after the ordinances of the nations that are around you. When I prophesied, 
Pelatiah the son of Benaiah, died. Then I fell down on my face and cried with a loud voice and said, Ah, Lord Yahweh, will you make a full end of the remnant of Israel? Yahweh's word came to me, saying, Son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, the men of your relatives, and all the house of Israel, all of them, are they to whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far away from Yahweh, this land has been given to us for a possession. Therefore say, The Lord Yahweh says, Whereas I have removed them far off among the nations, and whereas I have scattered them among the countries, yet I will be to them a sanctuary for a little while in the countries where they have come. Therefore say, The Lord Yahweh says, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. They will come there, and they will take away all its detestable things and all its abominations from there. I will give them one heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. I will take the stony heart out of their flesh, and will give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances, and do them. They will be my people, and I will be their God. But as for them whose heart walks after the heart of their detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their way on their own heads, says the Lord Yahweh. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings, and the wheels were beside them. The glory of the God of Israel was over them above. Yahweh's glory went up from the middle of the city and stood on the mountain which is on the east side of the city. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me in the vision by the Spirit of God into Chaldea to the captives. So the vision that I had seen went up from me. Then I spoke to the captives all the things that Yahweh had shown me. That is the end of chapters 8 through 11. At the beginning of chapter 8, I think this is the next date marker in the book, and here we are told that this happened in the sixth year, the sixth month, so approximately a year and a half later. When you refer back to chapter 1, verse 2, this seems to be referring to the beginning of Jehoiachin's captivity, because obviously the sixth year doesn't have anything to do with the 30th year in verse 1-1. Ezekiel has enough reputation we see here, or leadership, among the captives that the elders of Judah, who were also captive, were gathered in his house. It doesn't say why they were there, but in Ezekiel 14.1, it talks about them seeking him out to hear from Yahweh, and it also mentions here that they're sitting, so they're not just passing by. Since it says that this is when Ezekiel's vision started, and at the end, at the end of chapter 11, he then told the captives what had happened, it's possible those elders were there the whole time he's experiencing this vision. Here in chapter 8, Ezekiel doesn't tell any more about the scene. In verse 2, as we have designated it, he gets right to explaining the vision, and he sees a likeness that is very similar to the likeness seen in chapter 1, verses 26 through 27. I did a tiny little chart. So in chapter 1, it says, from the waist up was like amber with fire all around. And here in 8.2, it says it was the brightness as glowing metal. So those are very comparable. And then in chapter 1, it says, from the waist down, 
as it were, fire and brightness all around. And then here in 8.2, it talks about fire from the waist down. The mode of transportation, as it were, in verse 3, of taking Ezekiel by a lock of hair, to me seems to show how easy it was for Yahweh to move Ezekiel about. Touching the lock makes it clear that Yahweh is doing the moving, but Ezekiel was lifted to Jerusalem, right to the door of the inner gate, uh, the court. Now, we know from the progression through verse 16 that this is the court of the temple. And that also, per chapter 11, verse 24, he says the vision went up from him. So he had always been physically in the land of captivity. Now, right off in chapter 8, he sees the image that provokes jealousy. This harkens back to Exodus 20, verses 4 through 5 where it talks about the Ten Commandments, don't make an image for worship because God is jealous. And it always behooves us to remember that this is a pure jealousy of love and righteousness, the the right kind of jealousy that a husband would have for his wife's affection is a reflection of this. Also, Deuteronomy 32.16 is a place where in the Song of Moses, he actually prophesies about this. In verse 4, chapter 8, Ezekiel makes it clear that he is seeing the glory of God like the time in the plain, which was in chapter 3, verse 22, which he already says there is like chapter 128. In this progression of the vision, we see the leaders and the people of Israel have desecrated every space of the temple and its court, where they were supposed to be worshiping and meeting Yahweh. And instead, they're devoted to gross idols and the the detestable ways that they worship these idols. In verse 6, God says these things make him want to be away from there, which he will do later. But here in verse 7, the hole comes up, and it seems to show that they are trying to hide. They are being secretive, acting like they can't be seen, which Obviously, if they think that, they haven't been paying attention to the nature of God and the other things he's seen. Unfortunately, this reminds me of what is told to us in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 28, where those who are ungodly and unrighteous men who pursue those things suppress the truth and do not retain um, God in their knowledge. For some reason, per verse 8, Ezekiel is told to dig to see more. We don't know how big the hole was to begin with or how much he has to dig, but he manages it, doesn't make a big deal about it in the vision, uh, as he's telling us. So whereas God can easily see, Ezekiel had to put out some effort to expose what they were trying to hide, though the digging did turn up a door with not too much effort, as it seems. In verse 11, these 70 elders would have represented all the leadership of Israel. This goes back to the precedence in um, Exodus 24.9 and Numbers 11.16. In the account in Exodus, this is where the 70 elders went with Moses and actually ate in the presence of God. We have another mention of 70, interestingly, in Luke 10.1, where Jesus appointed 70 others, other than the other 12 disciples, to go out two by two to proclaim the kingdom of God. And from a New Testament perspective, the Sanhedrin was a 
was composed of ruling elders also, and they are the ones who brought Jesus to trial before Pilate. So they were just as wicked as these 70 elders that Ezekiel is seeing. When talking about these 70 elders in Ezekiel here, it mentions a fellow by the name of Jeazaniah. And I always shudder for someone when they are given documented biblical personal recognition of their devotion to depravity. He was the son of Shaphan, and being ID'd that way here makes it likely that he is the son of the Shaphan, the scribe, who was sent to Hilkiah the priest when Josiah was restoring the temple, as we hear about in 2 Kings 22. If you do the math, um, particularly referencing Floyd Nolan Jones' chronology, this was only about 37 years later. Um, there is also another son of Shaphan, and Ahikam, mentioned in Jeremiah 26-24, who was helping to protect Jeremiah. So two sons of Shaphan, one going the right way and one doing wrong. Also in verse 11, the thick cloud of incense that is a result of what these guys are doing shows the full involvement of idolatry on their part. They're not just thinking about it. They are completely committed to this. In verse 14, Ezekiel is dismayed at the Israelite women who are weeping for this god to move. Notes in many, many commentaries say that this is a fertility god known by different names in different cultures, but verse 13 here just points out that this is a great abomination. What is clear is that you have both men and women in Israel fully involved in worshiping idols. Now, I'll be honest with you, I was having a hard time keeping traffic track of exactly where Ezekiel was facing compared to these gates that are mentioned. I looked up several diagrams of the temple, which would have been Solomon's temple at this point in history, and the best that I could ascertain was that the north gate, which was at least close to where these women were weeping, might go into a distinctly priestly area, but it wasn't clear that the women were actually in that area. What was clear is that the women were involved in the idolatry, so everyone was doing this, like I said. Now, the weeping, to me, is similar to the cloud of incense. It shows the wholehearted involvement in this depravity. These people should rather be crying in repentance to Yahweh or lifting up prayers like incense, as the imagery in the Bible is used elsewhere. Now, just on a side note, this particular false god, Tammuz, is not mentioned by name anywhere else in the Bible. But we hear there are still greater abominations. So they go into the inner court where the altar is, so not the Holy of Holies. Still, it's where sacrifice to the Lord by those who have a loving, humble worship of him should be taking place. But here instead, we have 25 men worshiping the sun. Verse 17, God asks a rhetorical question because this obviously isn't a small matter. It is not at all trivial. And then he says that because of all these practices, the land is filled with violence. He's not saying he has filled it with violence. He's saying they have filled it with violence. Also regarding verse 17 and this phrase, the branch to their nose, Every commentary that I read on it only had conjecture. The only thing that stood out as possibly based on something substantial was Jewish sources thinking that this phrase of 
the branch or the twig to their nose, referred to a revolting or wicked rite. And certainly God says it was scorn or contempt and ends chapter 8 with declarations of his wrath. The implications of not listening to their cries being that they aren't really repentant. In chapter 9 in the World English Bible, I read verse 1, which uses the phrase, cried in my ears. The New King James Version says this as, called out in my hearing. Those two with actually cried in my ears being the most common one that I saw in different translations um, seem to emphasize that this was directed very clearly at Ezekiel. And in comparison, the phrase as it is translated in the NIV and the CSB kind of softens that and doesn't even doesn't sound for sure like he's talking to Ezekiel there. But what Ezekiel goes on to tell is that there are these men or forms of men that Ezekiel sees, and everything about what he describes gives the impression that they are angelic beings. And we can compare this to other places in Scripture that actually talk about angels as one being in charge over the city, like in Daniel 10, 13, and 12, 1. And as far as them being described like men, again, in Daniel 8, 15, and 9, 21, and then also um, Luke 1, 11 through 20, and um, Luke 1, 26 talks about the man Gabriel, who describes himself as an angel coming from the presence of God. And three, these angels act like warriors in a sense that we see in other places in the Bible. Regarding the man in linen, it's good to reference Leviticus 16.4 because this would probably be associated in the Jewish mind with the office of priesthood because they were specifically told to wear linen. Of course, the marking of those who desire God's ways reminds us of what happens in Revelation 7, which is specifically referring to people who are physically descended from Jacob, Israel. But back here in the time of Ezekiel, this would include Jeremiah that would be marked, somebody would, who would have groaned against the wickedness there. Now, in Jeremiah 13, 17, there is actually record where he has a basically a poem of sorrow and warning. I'd also like to mention here that when he talks about marking the men, I see this here as grammatically gender-inclusive, especially when you put it together with verse 6, where he says, anyone who's marked. And this is not an unusual usage of gender-inclusive men. Then we get to this phrase in verse 6 that can be kind of troubling, to be honest which is fulfilled in 2 Chronicles 36.17. I've delved thoroughly into this statement of slaughter, but I'd like to go over it again because it is difficult. So let me start with some basics. One, this verse, this saying, does not occur in a vacuum. We have all of God's word and a clear description and demonstration of his character, and he is very merciful and loving and patient. Second. This is describing the slaughter of war that God will allow to wipe out the current population, and it will be thorough. Three, physical death does not equal damnation. And one particular example is David's infant son who dies because of David's sin, but not for David's sin. Like he's not a sacrifice, but there's the consequence for David's sin. 
And then four, along the same lines, children are not punished for their parents' sin, and there are plenty of scriptures about that, such as Ezekiel 18.20, Jeremiah 31.29, Deuteronomy 24.16. It could be mistaken to come across as the children being punished when it says all who haven't been marked due to longing for God's ways. We don't know who was marked, if it was only people who were of a certain age, but we do know of God's attitude toward children. Beginning way back in Numbers 14.31, Deuteronomy 139, Isaiah 7.16, Luke 18.15, Matthew 18.3-4, Psalm 127.3-5, Exodus 22.22, Deuteronomy 10.18, Jeremiah 22.3, Isaiah 1.17. These verses talk about variations of innocence, of not being old enough to know right from wrong, of being humble like a child to come to God, of children being treasured, of people not supposed to be um, taking advantage of the fatherless, and also the positive of that, that they're supposed to make sure to take care of the fatherless. It is really the wicked who have already been abusing and sacrificing their own children who are bringing this judgment on the land. Now, I'm not saying I completely understand this phrase or war description and how it's being used here, but I do think it's pretty clear, taking all of Scripture, that we know without a doubt that God cares for those children because He cares for any children. And going back to what I said about physical death not equaling damnation, the judgment not being for what they did, but they are included in the slaughter because of what's been going on in the land around them. There's another part of this discussion that I won't go into a lot here, but there is strong scriptural support that any innocent child who was killed before being able to know right from wrong is mercifully given the effect of the blood of Jesus Christ. It's applied to him. And I'll link to a couple of good discussions about that. In this vision, Ezekiel is seeing killing and death, though it has not occurred in real time for him yet. He's still he's distressed because he can see the nation will be wiped out. Not all the people, but the remnant that has remained in the land, and he sees that as destroying the nation. God's response here in chapter 9, verse 9, is that Ezekiel should recall the exceedingly great iniquity, including all the blood they have shed. In chapter 10, there is another interaction with things going on with these cherubim. The man in linen gets fire to scatter on the city is like what is recorded in Revelations 8-5, where there are some coals scattered on the whole earth at the end of the seven seals. Here in Revelations 8-5, the fire seems associated with the prayers of the saints, but in Ezekiel 10-2, we see that this fire is in the wheels too, which in chapter 1 for 13, it does talk about there being a lot of fire with these cherubim. But oh, I forgot to mention the sapphire throne. I just wanted to make a couple of comments that both in Ezekiel 122 and here, it's talked about as a sapphire throne, whereas when it's mentioned in Revelation 4.2 and Isaiah 6.1, it doesn't mention the sapphire in particular. In chapter 10, verse 4 of Ezekiel, God is manifesting his presence there, his glory, moving to the threshold. It's kind of like a person leaving or thinking about leaving. And then in verse 7, we have a cherub that stretches out a hand. 
which is curious, but we know it mentions the hand several times so that we'll understand that. Then in verses 8 through 15, Ezekiel describes them again, clarifying they are the same living creatures he saw by the river Chabar in chapter 1, verse 5. So we don't need to be confused by the variation in describing their faces. Some would say that he's saying that the face of an ox looks like the face of a cherub in verse 14. I kind of like what Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown suggest that Ezekiel was seeing a different perspective of that one cherub that didn't limit him to seeing just one face at the moment, though he obviously knew each had all four faces. So not a big deal. Again, he emphasizes the totality of how all of the parts of the cherubim that he is seeing are alive. And then in verse 18, the glory of the Lord departs the threshold to be over the earth. Moving on to chapter 11, Ezekiel gets relocated in his vision again, this time to the east gate. And again, there are 25 men and another, a different Jeazaniah, plus this guy named Pelatiah. And these men are planning and counseling wickedness. Now, personally, I would equate being meat in a cauldron with something unpleasant. But as the section goes on, you get the idea that these men, at least initially, are trying to paint it in a positive light. Regarding the building of houses, it is quite possible they are being scornful about Jeremiah's prophecy as recorded in Jeremiah 29 verses 4 through 32, where the captives were told to build houses. And this will go along with something that comes up in God's response to Ezekiel later in the chapter. But regarding the way they're talking about the cauldron and the meat positively, God turns what they are saying about it on its ear and talks about it more like they all get their gooses cooked, which is an idiom I know. Then it says that as Ezekiel prophesied, so Ezekiel is speaking somehow during his vision um, as he is told to in verse 5. And right while he is speaking, the guy Pelatiah dies. And again, Ezekiel is very distressed by this and speaks of it as wiping out the nation. And this is where God's response is to point out to Ezekiel that these are the same people who are telling Ezekiel and all of his relatives, basically, get lost. We're taking charge of the land. You don't have any place here anymore. In a direct countering of this evil and selfish sentiment, God promises to bring back those who have been scattered all in the world to live in this land, he says in verse 17. So these people will return at some point and they will remove detestable things. Notice first in verse 17, it says countries. So this is plural. So this indicates something more far off than just to the captives in Babylon. And God will give these people who want to follow him, who are going to remove these detestable things, a heart of flesh. But those who reject him will be left, quote, their own way on their heads. Finally, in verse 22, Yahweh's glory goes all the way up from the city. And Ezekiel is fully relocated in Chaldea and tells the other captives what he saw. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. That is the Bible News Press segment for today, but not the end of our journey. 